Welcome to the Product Design Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Coolen, founder of UX Cabin, where we create world-class web and mobile apps. I'm excited to bring you a behind-the-scenes look into the lives of some of the most interesting and talented people in product design. We'll get strategic advice on how they got to where they are today and things they wish they would have known earlier in their career. Today, we have Jean Caluza with us. She is what I would consider one of the founding uh, members of UX Cabin. She joined on as a contractor uh, just as we were starting to grow, and we've been working together for around two years. So Jean uh, heads up our UX research arm of UX Cabin, and uh, Jean, it's great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so uh, honored. And I also super pumped that UX has grown into this whole ordeal that it has a podcast. And that's really cool, too. Uh, Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you, you know, typically do on a day to day basis? So my name is Jean Kaluza, and I originally came from uh, Cleveland, kind of got started in design back in high school, really. There was a tech prep program that taught you, you know, graphic arts and got you all involved. And uh, I thought that was really cool. Really wanted to get into websites before probably anyone else did, just because I thought there were like this awesome medium that you could play with and do cool stuff with. And then uh, fast forward so many years, now I'm doing uh, cool research and making sure websites are being built properly and applications are really useful to end users using them. That's awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your career journey? Like, How did you start off? How did you come to find UX research and get involved in the arena of product design? Yeah. So back in those days, <laughs> uh, I don't know if UX was uh, really as big as it is now. Now it's, you almost need kind of that research component as part of your design process, but that wasn't always the case. Really, my opportunities were either go against all the designers in the middle of a recession or learn some code and try and get into the industry that way. So back then you didn't really need too much JavaScript to go real far. So I honed in on CSS and HTML and, you know, barely development languages just to kind of break through and get in. And I was always hired as the designer that can code, but I really didn't like the code. It was so difficult for me to think in that regard. And it it was kind of great because it laid down this foundation of much respect for the developers and what they're able to accomplish and uh, all the different hoops they have to jump through every day. And, uh, you know, kind of the underwire of how all of these things uh, are being built. And so um, I also was put on a lot of bugs because I wasn't the best developer, obviously. And I would land on these pages that would be like, in my opinion, very seldom visited. And I was fixing like one little bug on this little button that I knew no one was ever going to 
click on and it would drive me crazy because I'm like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? I don't understand. Nobody can even see this page. This is ridiculous. This button should be blue. Why is it purple? Like there's so, there were so many questions. And so somebody came up to me one day and they were like, you know, there, there is a job where you can just ask those questions. And I was like, no way. And then I got into UX and I read, uh, don't make me think on a plane ride coming back from a vacation or something somewhere and realized, oh my gosh, this really is a whole industry. This is so cool. And then it was my days at work turned into like the one tab where the bug was that I needed a fix. And then like 50 other tabs of just like UX articles and podcasts that I was listening to and almost building up um, different arguments against the bugs that I was fixing as to like, hey, not only should you let me fix this bug, but maybe you should make it so this is easier to get to so people actually click on it once I do fix it. So it was very kind of like a start off as a almost a personal endeavor, I guess, to try and not lash out, but like find my my turf or like work out a little sanction of the field that made sense to me. And then in doing so, eventually I was asked to speak at a, at a tech conference and I didn't even really have proper UX experience yet. I just, you know, taken some courses and had all those tabs open and just been dreaming about it all that time. And I just went up there and I stood on my soapbox and I just preached my UX gospel, if you will, as to as far as like what I thought things should be and how things should be done and like users first and data, 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 and why aren't we doing this and that? And this is how you can structure things. And uh, things really took off from there. I was getting offers left and right for actual roles like that. And I obviously embraced it. I loved it a lot. And yeah, things things really took off from there. Maybe we can talk about some of the the highs and lows of your uh, your career journey. When you say that, it makes me think of my experience at Code School. And at the time when I came in, they they had UX, um, but they weren't sure they were doing it right. And they came to one of my talks and did whatever they could to kind of get me in the door, which they didn't have to do a lot because it was code school and I was so excited. I think initially it was a lot of like developing processes that I thought could help them and learning them on my own and trying to figure them out. The cool thing was our parent company was Pluralsight. They had just acquired code school and at Pluralsight, they had a team of 50 of me that were already in set processes and really understood kind of the structures and the, the flows that you follow. And they even, uh, we were able to visit their, their premise. And it was so cool. The designers, the UX people were like centrally located and they had like this glass room that they plastered their research results in. And it was like the central hub and considered like, kind of the heart and the source of where everything else was kind of coming from. And it really opened my eyes to like, oh, this doesn't have to be just me. This could be like how everything actually functions because they were like this really successful team of uh, really well-respected researchers and designers and got to call the shots. And even if they went to like their superior and they were like, I'm not sure what to do here, the superior just turn around and tell them like, well, then you need to do more research. I'm certainly not the user. I can't tell you what to do. And it was this really cool way to, I think, come into 
my own as far as like what this really means and work with this really skilled uh, and awesome team at Pluralsight to kind of understand the inner workings and why we're doing what we're doing. They would even come back and visit us. And I was kind of the team of one at Code School trying to implement what they had at Pluralsight as one person (laughs) in Code School. So that was like a baptism through fire to say the least, as far as like how to run things, because I was really trying to do all the different parts that their 50-person team team was doing. So it was awesome because I got to do all of the processes. It was very challenging because I didn't even know how over my head I was in the amount of tasks I was taking on. And I also wasn't a director, so like there was a lot of decisions being made, and I wouldn't find out about them until like my projects suddenly changed directions and I would be, you know, kind of get the rug ripped out from under me. So I was just in this position of a lot of responsibility without really realizing the extent of it and never really sure to know that I should be saying no when I'm not ready for things or asking for help because it wasn't even really a position that was thought of as a thing uh, to them at the time. So I think there was some... I could have used probably a more experienced person uh, there to help guide me through some of those uh, obstacles. I did have some great people there, but they were more focused on building out a UX course. They were awesome in a ton of different ways, but there was just like this whole running of a product team that I was trying to do that I didn't really understand that that's what I was even doing. I was just trying to do my best. And I thought that encompassed all the things and I took on a lot, but it was a really great experience because now I can see a project and be like, Oh, it needs this part of that job that I did before. So I'll just focus on that. And it's cool now looking back on and being like, I might not recommend that for people because it was pretty brutal, but it's cool now. It was a boot camp for sure. (laughs) That's awesome. I know we've talked about kind of the difference in product companies between a product-led company versus like a sales-led company. Um, Maybe you can kind of contrast those two different paradigms and how they look and what the consequences of, of either are. Yeah, so I think um, I should probably start off by saying both could work. I understand how business works. <laughs> I get that sales-driven can work. But I would say if you're building a very tech-dependent company, and what I mean by that is if you have users that can leave whenever they want to and they have their own jurisdiction as far as whether they come and go, um, then you probably want to be more tech and product driven because sales driven works if you're selling to a user that might not necessarily use your software every day, if that makes sense. So like if you're selling to a health compliance company to make sure they stay compliant and their end users are doctors and physicians and they don't necessarily buy your product, but they have to do it to stay compliant. It's their hands are tied. Like they're tied to your application might be able to get away with more sales driven because people have to use your product. That's not to say they're going to like using your product, but it might not matter because at the end of the day, the bottom line can keep the board going and everybody happy. I totally get how that works. But tech is or product driven is totally different. 
and completely relies upon your users wanting to sign into your products on a regular basis, whatever that means for that given product. And if you don't get that model right, inevitably, if you're not looking at your data, you're probably it's probably because it's scary looking because it's probably a cliff of people dropping left and right because there inevitably is going to be more competition that comes to market or their ideals change, the world around them change. I mean, look at the, what the pandemic did. Everybody's shifting around now. And so I think it's it's important if you've got you know a sales-driven company that you've got to maybe acknowledge that. And I've been learning to do that and see that now as far as like what, okay, that does work for that company ish. <laughs> like their end users are still going to be pretty frustrated with their experience, but maybe that doesn't matter as much for them, unfortunately. As, and, but as far as like a product driven company, it's, you got to get it right or it's inevitable. People are going to start dropping. I don't know if this is true in every case, but it almost sounds like there could be a, a distinction between like B2C software apps and B2B so- software apps where consumer led apps kind of almost have to be product led because it's an, it's optional but maybe b2b is more forced on people and and those maybe tend to be more sales driven even like asana has a really great user experience that you can tell is they put a lot of time into like some of the research and that's b2b um because yeah. they acknowledge that you know some of their competitors think oh it's B2B, so like it doesn't matter. But like people right. are dropping off that and going to Asana. So I think it's more. I think it's more of a knowing your market, and sometimes it's yeah. more like government pushed. <laughs> like this is compliance, for example. Like I have to do this. You can get away with a little bit more because people are tied to it. Whereas like I think you know, look at Slack. Like I mean that flipped everything Uh, and Slack could have said, you know, people have email or like people have uh, Microsoft, (laughs) like people have this solution. It doesn't matter, but they noticed that UX is important and uh, came out with Slack and everyone loves it now. So I will say that I think people are more and more, I mean, the industries in general is more and more uh, expectations are higher as far as things just working and being, you don't need to come out with a manual and documentation when you come out with software. Like it's expected. It needs to be really easy and more and more companies that disregard that are going to go down faster and faster. I think I might be biased (laughs) being, I I agree, but that's what I've been seeing. Very cool. Yeah, though. That's, that's fascinating. I think of Slack and you think of like how many chat applications came before Slack. So you had, you know, obviously right. back in the golden days, like AOL Messenger, and then, um, you know, MSN Messenger, whatever, Google Chat, Skype had like a 17 year head start on everyone. And <laughs> or Skype totally got usurped by uh, Slack, like everyone got usurped by Slack. And it's just like, incredible how something that's just like, basically does the same thing, but just a little bit better in all of these different little nuances can totally flip the market. It matters. It matters a lot. Yeah. That's why, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm doing research projects and you come out with a solution and it's like this, such an obvious solution that 
everyone in the room is like, why did we hire you again? This is like so obvious. This is so dumb. And even I'm like scratching my head like, yeah, you could have just did that. Why, why, why did you need me to do six weeks of all these intense interviews and talking? But if you've come to that conclusion and it is so like, I mean, common sense at that point, you realize that that's actually why you need to do the research is it needs to feel that way. So people can use it that easily. And I think it's almost like a, like an unsung hero, like the bassist in any band where like they're laying down the groove that you're like nodding your head to and you might not even realize it, but it's, uh, it's important to get right. And, uh, it's very noticed if it's not done well. Totally. Let's talk for a minute about kind of your, your origin story of working with UX cabin. I remember that someone had introduced you to me. And in my mind, I kind of thought you were like a UX designer, like, a, like on the UI side, but you did research or you knew research. And I remember when we started working together, I kind of tried to like, put you into that peg of like, do design, Jean. And I'm such a rebel. <laughs> Yeah, you kind of found your way to be like out of that, but also like provide value in in research. And it was kind of like unexpected. I don't know. Do you want to give your like sorry take on that? (laughs) (laughs) It's probably so annoying to be like, I hired you to do this other thing. Yeah, I um it's so weird because he introduced us and I had worked with him before actually as a designer they hired me as a designer and then just had me code the whole time (laughs) and then i would bug him with questions on code for eventually you just sent me a link to google.com it's pretty funny (laughs) but anyway yeah uh he it's weird that he would you know pass me off as a designer because i don't think i even did that with him either and him and i had talked already about like me pairing up with him and do some research stuff so it's weird that that's how he introduced us but he did tell me that that is how we were connected so i made sure to play that role and i i can do design but i'm not as i guess confident with it because with data i could just point to a graph and be like black and white buddy like i don't know (laughs) it's definitely is what it is whereas design like it's so subjective and i've never really done it and uh well i've done it but it's there's always been like the designer and me just like supporting and so i don't think i've had the same uh training in it as like a lot of designers and my attention to detail has just diminished over the years where it's just like I don't care if this pixel is in the right place. Like this isn't the right screen that we should be designing is more the way my thought processes work. Yeah. I'm definitely more big picture and can see that stuff. I think more because, because everyone else is focused on those pixels and getting it to load correctly and work. And that's great. You need those people, but you also need somebody to be like, are we building the right thing? I think all of these pixels are wrong. What I try and do is if, if they see if there's a use for me and I can be useful as a designer, I try and do that as much as I can. But I already know I'm going to be way more useful to whatever team I'm on if I can switch over into that big picture mindset and kind of cover some blind spots that I know everyone else is experiencing and probably doesn't even know they're experiencing because I can see it and I know they can't. As soon as I started seeing that, I think on a couple projects, I was jumping in and like 
we should do some testing, bro. Like we should do this. We should do that. Maybe we can ask that question. And we really don't know what we're doing. Do we like asking, you know, seeing testing the waters and seeing uh, if I can be useful in that way. And, um, I'm so glad that you, uh, kudos to you for giving me the space and opportunity to do those things. I've definitely had the experiences where it was just a quick no. (laughs) Uh, I would have to kind of find my way out (laughs) to try and be a better use. Um, But you are so graceful in letting me, we just ran with it. I'm I'm very grateful for that opportunity for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think you brought such a different skill set than what I had or been used to, or even thinking like what a project needed, that it was really foundational and helpful for a lot of the projects that we were on. Because I've, you know, been so focused on like the UI, the how does the product look? Like, how can we reduce like the amount of steps? Just like general UX best practices, but not even thinking about like holistically of like who who's using this and does this UX make sense to them? Like if we put this in yeah. front of them and ask them. And I think your efforts on that really helped shape a lot of the the thought process that we have at the company today, which has been awesome. Yeah, thanks. And also probably brought a lot of uh, <laughs> frustration and just like, oh, no, we have to add and do more research here. Come on, Gene, get out of our way. <laughs> <laughs> which I get to. I think but, both sides yeah, I mean, that's are, are good, you know? The way I look at it is that you can either have the bad news at the beginning or the bad news at the end. And it's it's better to know a process or a feature is bad from the start and be a little bit disappointed yep. than to take it all the way through design and development and then realize it's a bad feature or it was built in a wrong way. Right. I mean, that goes back to like my roots, right? It's just being a kind of bad HTML develop, developer and knowing that it's so frustrating working on these bugs that are even classified as low already. And you're just like, so it doesn't really matter if I get this to work. And we're also not entirely sure someone's going to see this. Awesome. I love spending my life on <laughs> buttons like that. <laughs> yes. Soul draining bugs. What are some things that you wish you had known that you didn't know when you were starting out in your career? So technology is like this. It's such a cool field because it changes so much and it affects not just the people in tech, but everybody around you and provides all these tools. But there's this other side of it that's like ever changing so daunting you could go down a bajillion rabbit holes and those have their own rabbit holes like it's just so much and i'm sure it can be very overwhelming i think when i got into this it was presented as which direction do you want to go in a b c or d and then those are your options and that's it so i kind of found a way to be a developer because i'm like all right if i'm not good at design enough and i guess i'll just i really need to stop eating peanut butter and get a job like I'll be a developer. That's fine. And what I think would have been helpful is if you can see something that somebody else isn't, or you can provide a value, you know, you can, that maybe isn't a a field yet or isn't an option yet, but you still know it would help your team in that moment. Those are the, the times where I think that's when tech starts shifting again. And I didn't, realized that it was going to shift. Like I knew the computers and the websites and that kind of tech was going to shift. I didn't realize like 
the job positions, the roles, the accountabilities, like the way the actual product is being built was going to shift too. And had I actually kind of realized all of everything around us is malleable and we could kind of just shape it the way we know to be, it would have been a lot helpful going into it instead of being told you're either a developer or a designer, which one are you? And just being like, I don't know. <laughs> I think I can do a little bit of both. Um, whereas I think if somebody said like, what do you think we should do here? And if you, if you did have all the skills, what would be most useful and how do you fall into that is a better way to think about it. Because I think today, if you land in San Francisco, they're going to have a whole list of titles that I could sort of fall into. Whereas if I go into like a Florida or Ohio, they have like just one or two that I definitely have to fall into and that's it. And why are you researching? Why That's not even a thing. Like, <laughs> So I think it just depends yeah. where you go and you have to know your worth and know what the team needs in that moment and finding your way. And somebody wants to call you, you know, a product designer or a UX researcher or UX designer. There's so many titles where it's just like, forget that. Just know what the job is. Know what the the success looks like and figure out how you best can serve your team to get there is how I would suggest thinking about your, your uh, career. Nice. I think there's a lot of micro jobs within product design, right? So it's like, maybe you're the go-to person for prototyping or animation or yeah. microcopy or setting up, you know, user tests. There's all these little niche so things, things that yeah. fall within the umbrella that no one person can be good at all of them, but it, like you need different people on your team that can dig in and be like, if you ever have a question on animation, like, hit me up. I know, ex I know it in and out. Yeah. I know. Or, a you know, setting up user tests or surveys or whatever. And yeah, they're not these just broad buckets of like design or development, like you were saying. Yeah. It's just, it's a dangerous hole to fall into. And you're kind of stopping yourself short of like learning something that you might be really good at. Cause I certainly thought oh, I'm just going to be a bad developer the rest of my life until somebody was like, no, your your annoyance of this thing that you do every day is actually a job. <laughs> and you can save a lot of future developers a lot of future pain by doing some research at the get-go. But uh, something else you mentioned, whereas, like, uh, you know, if you know a good animator, then, like, you're, you're good to go. And I think that's a really cool aspect of UX Cabin, is there's so many, like, giant talents here, but we all kind of have our own little niche of what we do and can provide to the team. And it's really cool going into, I guess, meetings with even clients, knowing that of, like, I got, like, the, uh, the wonder team behind me. So, you know, lay it on me. What do you got? And I'm like, okay, so for that, I talked to this person, that I talked to that person, and, like, it's kind of a, a cool uh, place to work because you just feel like, I got, I know a guy. You always know a guy at UX Cabin. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. We were just, we just had our lunch and learn with Matthias. He's our resident icon designer. Um, so good. You know, Leakin is our, our animator. Jeans are our, our researcher. So yeah, I think you're right. That's, that's really cool is that no, no, we don't really have clones. We just have people who have who have overlap, but they all have their unique skill, which is which is awesome. 
Yeah. It's really cool. So say someone is, you know, either finishing up college, they're thinking what they want to do next, and they're intrigued by this idea of research, tech, you know, product design research, UX research. What would you say would be the things that they should look into or the things that they should start doing if they wanted to pursue a career in 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 research? Yeah, so one thing that I didn't realize was, I guess, an option was to get involved in a already built out research oriented product team. Um, like, like the plural site experience that I, I was so fortunate to have. I didn't know that that was available <laughs> because I learned UX from like a book in my, my computer screen. So I didn't know that that was really a field before I even started. And come to find out that there's this whole world and people dedicating their lives to it. And it's such a awesome opportunity. And I think I missed out on learning from that from the get go and how to just try and figure it out on my own, which is much harder because UX really requires almost like a support person to get your data to the right people at the right time. And if you're just for example, like a lot of times I'll be brought in as a alongside a designer and, you know, just research their designs and you're good to go. And I, that made sense to me at the time. So I would try it. And that's not how it works because if my research points to this is not a good idea at all, I don't care what your designs look like, like the people aren't going to use this app anymore. It doesn't do the main function that we promised it would. Uh, for example, like a VPN that lets you watch Netflix outside the country that just doesn't work anymore. And they're like, yeah, just research it. And I'm like, I did. No bueno. Like, it just doesn't work anymore. And there's no amount of research I can do. And there's nothing I can say anymore that can, like, help that go in the better direction, which I could do the research to find that better direction as far as, like, oh, if we promote it instead of a... Um, you know, a VPN to let you watch Netflix, maybe we should promote it as like an actual safety mechanism to like keep you and your privacy secure. We would get a whole new influx of people and we could remove all the people that don't. And I was trying to get that point across. But if you're just at a level of just, a, you know, kind of a, we hired you as a designer, that's what you're, you're supposed to do. Um, you can't make those calls. That's not my call at all. All I could do is point at charts for years. Really, it was, I think, two years of just like still the same data. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do. So I would say those jobs are less than fulfilling. And you should probably find a team or not accept a position unless you're sure the what your data is going to project is actually going to go somewhere. Because when it doesn't, you start questioning yourself, you start questioning your field, you start questioning a lot of things. And I have seen a number of articles even recently of UX folks getting burned out left and right because it is daunting to do all that research and get it turned around on you uh, and get told that it's not going to go anywhere. And I think that especially when you're first starting out, you should probably avoid that because we don't want you jaded right out the gate. We want you learning new methodologies and being staying excited and staying human focused and data driven. So I would suggest working with a team that really respects it right off the bat so you can learn all those different aspects without all of the um, pushback, I guess. So you have worked full time 
at places, at companies, and you've also freelanced or contracted as well. Can you give a little insight into the differences of each and and your preference of what you like better? I think as an employee, I struggle with the word permanence any, when it comes to technology just in general. But I think especially after the pandemic, permanence is like this weird <laughs> thing about jobs or like, ah, okay, nothing's ever permanent. But um, it is a little bit more comforting because you've got like your benefits covered and that's kind of nice. I think I was more pushed in that direction out of like a parental unit trying to encourage me to get that because I think it made them anxious that I wasn't leaning towards that. I When I first started, all I wanted to do was contract stuff because I just wanted all these different experiences and different industries and I wasn't sure what I was good at yet. So like, you know, development here, more design there, a little bit of research there. What's that? That's cool. And, you know, just learning from different teams and jumping around was more exciting to me and it gave me a lot more freedom. But when they did kind of usher me into my first employee meeting, I remember they were reviewing our health benefits. And I went home uh, that evening and I called my parents and I'm like, it's like having a a rich parent. Like they're covering everything. It's so crazy. (laughs) And I had never had that experience. I was already like in my mid twenties and I hadn't had like benefits yet. And I was like, it's so cool. They're like, yeah, we've been telling you. And it is really nice to have that covered. But I think it depends on the individual. Like for me, it wasn't a great fit for very long because eventually I did still want to jump and move to the next thing and see what happens there. If you can get really honest with yourself as far as like what you actually want and what makes you happy, it gets a little easier deciphering what you want to do. Tech is awesome because it offers a lot of different opportunities on both those sides. You can be as free as you want to. You can also be as tied down as you want to. And uh, it's, it's kind of a great way to kind of figure out what you want to do. But I would definitely listen to, you know, yourself and what you need things that you might not like, because I didn't really want to do the employee thing. I tried it. And now I know the benefits are really nice. That's so cool. But once you start learning, oh, I can cover that. If I save this this month and I do that, and if you're pretty good with money and you don't spend a lot, I don't really spend that much. So I kind of knew, okay, that's that's for a different breed of person. I kind of need this other thing. Yeah, I'm happy that we've been able to get you to work with us as long as you have, even <laughs> even as a contractor. It kind of plays into like, I don't know, the psychology of the person of, do they want more security? Do they want more freedom? Yeah, there's benefits and and disadvantages to each. And I think becoming more and more in our culture and even in our field where you can realistically pick what you want to do. Yeah. You know, I was just going to say, like, I worked so hard to be independent and like get to this point. And I'm like, I was so grateful we met and I still am. But it's so frustrating because now that I finally got here, the world's like, you know what? It is okay to work from home. Work from wherever. It's fine. And I'm like, (laughs) now? Now we're deciding? Okay, it's fine. Let's uh, jump into another aspect of your your life. You are, I think what everyone would consider a digital nomad. You live in different places for months on end and you kind of hop all over the world. Not a lot of people do that. I, I think a lot of people want to do that, but maybe you can give us kind of the, the, you know, the, the rosy side of that and the <laughs> maybe the dark side of that. 
feel like everyone knows the rosy side because nomads are just known for only posting about the rosy side. So you always see us like with our, you see our feet on the beach with our laptops and everyone thinks, wow, that's the life. Some days are like that. I'm not going to lie. And it's completely awesome. But I will say the same days that those happen, everyone behind me is actually on vacation. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was, I had yeah. to do a visa run and go to Costa Rica and I was staying in this cabana, which sounds very tropical and it was super wise. It was very cool. But everyone around me was constantly heading to the beach, going to check out that jungle, going to go do this, going to do that. Gene, why don't you come with us? And I'm like, I'm working, bro. <laughs> I still have to keep going. And if this internet doesn't work out, I need a plan B, C, D. Like I need to figure out what I'm doing when I'm here. And so that's probably the less uh, glittery side of things is like you're still working. And it took me uh, getting COVID this year to realize like I hadn't had a vacation in so long because you're not thinking about that. You're like, I am on vacation. You're not. It's, it's a mental thing, right? If you're still working in a tropical paradise, you're still working. And um, I think that's an important aspect to keep in mind because you can burn out pretty quickly doing that. Because even in airports while you're traveling, I was still popping up the laptop and trying to keep things going. I, I made it a personal goal to make sure nobody had to feel that I was actually traveling. Sometimes I couldn't help it. Sorry. <laughs> but normally I try and make sure that the only difference you feel is my background. It just sometimes changes. But otherwise, I really didn't want any of my clients to feel any blip in the matrix. I wanted them to feel like everything's always covered, even if she is doing that over there and you know, jumping to that plane on Thursday, it should not matter. So I always try to make sure that was uh, a thing. And that means you're, you're working at weird hours, you're working while everyone's on the beach, and maybe you can wave to them, but still gotta still gotta interview that user. (laughs) Still gotta get back to work. (laughs) Or the other thing is like the language barrier is super tough, too. Because like, sometimes you land and people are like, Oh, you're gonna be immersive. But I'm more of an introvert. So like, when I land in a different country with a different language now I have plenty of reasons that I don't really want to talk to people and that can that can really isolate you so when people are showing these amazing pictures maybe they're by themselves like it's it's can it can be really isolating and pretty hard too the other thing is I think people have this mentality of like nomads oh they could do whatever and they get get away from it all But in reality, you still have to take yourself with you and you start having to face some things that are like, oh, this is me and I have to like deal with this and I can't unpack it unless I like see a therapist or something. So I think you learn a lot about the world and yourself and your place in it. And I highly recommend it. But I would warn that um, it's not for everybody and it's more challenging than it looks. (laughs) I'm super, I'm still super grateful I get to do it though. I should say that. Still super grateful. That was a profound thing you said about it, no matter where you go, your 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 problems still sometimes follow you or surface. Like, yeah. you're, you're probably the same person you are if you're in, you know, Montana that you are in, you know, Costa Rica or whatever. But that's, uh, it that shows matter. some some high self-awareness there. <laughs> well, you, you become so, very <laughs> close to that in your travels. Have you ever felt unsafe during any of your travels? 
I'm a very safe and careful person. My going out is traveling. And then once I get to that destination, I tend to hermit myself and just work and uh, focus on those things. So generally, no, I usually feel pretty good. And it's the same, like, I've had friends that have had very scary things happen to them. But they were like, on a street corner in the middle of the night with their, their phones hanging out of their hands and bad stuff's going to happen because you basically have a flashlight announcing to everybody around you, hey, I got a really nice cell phone here (laughs) that I sort of am holding on to, but not really. (laughs) And I'm lost and I don't know. And all somebody has to do is drive up on a bike and snatch it uh, if you're lucky and they're not being violent, you know? So like you, you don't do stupid stuff. Um, You have to be much more careful uh, than, I wouldn't say much more careful. I mean, it's really funny to me because when I leave the States, everyone has these ideas of what I'm usually in South America and everyone has these ideas of South America is so dangerous and oh my gosh. But the reverse happens too. When I leave this country, go to the States, everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's where all the guns are. There's so many shootings. Are you going to be okay? And being on both sides of those arguments, I got to say, South Americans have a better point. Like there's more statistics and data (laughs) that says I'm better off in their countries than I am in the States. And I have been in like drive-bys and like five minutes away from shootings in Orlando. So like, I don't know. I I don't feel any less safe here than I do in the States, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. You live a crazy life. I call you Carmen Sandiego, the Carmen Sandiego of UX (laughs) cabin. (laughs) I proudly hold that title. So if you weren't in UX, product design, research, what would what what do you think you'd be doing? That's such a good question. I mean, I started off as a illustrator at no, a character artist. I wouldn't even call it an illustrator, a character artist at, at uh Universal and and uh those parks and just watching those guys just like tear people's faces and and it was so cool to see like arts being art and like this form of really cool expression and i did that for a while there's not a ton of money in that so i was trying to find something that can uh supply a regular income here and there but now that i'm in it i would love if i can just have a day of going back and doing that for just a just a day, maybe a week, but like just going back into that, it was so fun. Everyone was just there for the the experience of that art and just like what's going to happen. And it's almost, I mean, characters are so cool because you don't even, you think you know what a person looks like. And then you see one of my friends just like draw them and you're like, okay, you, you got it. I had a completely different idea <laughs> and it looks just like That's him, funny. but it's so like exaggerated. And that was just fun. I think, um, yeah, if I could go back just for one day, I think I would just do that again. Probably more watching than drawing, honestly. That's cool. I remember when I first got my first actual job in tech, I had beforehand been a caddy. So you're outside all day carrying oh, people's golf clubs, hob, hobnobbing, yeah, <laughs> hobnobbing with these rich guys. And I had this moment where I was like, crap, I'm in an office all day. I don't get to like walk around. Yeah. Get the sunshine. Yeah. I, and I was like, I kind of wish I could go back Just a little once. bit to that. And 
Yeah. And, you know, have that like fresh air. It's just like mm-hmm. a different, a totally different experience. And that was kind of a tough mental hurdle for me to get over. Yeah. Did you, do you think you experience it now because of quarantine and things being more shut down? I don't know. I feel like I've, I've adapted and working from home is just like infinitely better than working in an office, in my opinion. Like, yeah, you know, having to go and be creative for eight hours a day between the these hours are really, really hard. But if I'm at home, I can kind of break it up a little bit. I have these little pockets of being able to hang out with my family or have lunch or go on a walk. And if I want to work at 10, like I can catch up at 10 or if I want to, you know, wake up early and work a little bit. So it's like not being, having to be in an office for like the entirety of my work day has really helped a lot. Yeah. So yeah, I can see that's that. to anyone, to anyone listening, UX cabin will, will always have the option of remote because <laughs> I myself wouldn't want to be in an office all the time. So even if we ever do have a, an office, it certainly wouldn't be a mandatory Open door thing. policy. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah. Seth, you just make the, the dream come true. Cause I tell people that I get to kind of do that. And they're just like, what? Cause there are nomads that still have like the nine to five and have to, you know, religiously sit there every day. And now I, Oh man, I don't know if I can actually go back to that at this point. I might like self combust <laughs> or something. <laughs> I was going to ask you what, what's your favorite thing about working at UX cabin is, is that like the the flexibility aspect, your favorite part? Well, I got to tell you, like I never, I always wanted the flexibility. I'm like, I I got to a point where I'm like, I don't even care what I have to give up to get there. I'm going to make that happen. What I didn't expect is to be able to do that and work with such a pool of talent at the same time and work with somebody that was like you that understood that I don't need to be at the desk all the time and nonstop and like things happen. And, and one of my favorite parts about it is like when there, there is a meeting or there is something going on from you, it's never like be here at this time. You're always like, can you make it? And I love that. It's just like a little bit of a tweak of like approach to it. But I've had other clients that, it's the it's the same thing. Like we we organize and and schedule our meetings the same way, but theirs is much more like it's going to be two p.m. tomorrow, okay? And you have to be like, all right, I guess I got to cancel this and move this around. <laughs> Whereas like with you, it's like, does that work? And I'm still probably going to cancel and move things around to make sure that works. But it's just that little nuance that like makes warms my heart a little bit. Oh, it's interesting, you know. It's just that little Aww, tweak and it means a lot. Cool. That's of, cool like, to know. Yeah. It makes a difference. Yeah. yeah. It's also like that's awesome the talent know. pool is, is not something I thought I, cause back in the day I thought I was the only one, the only weirdo that wanted to like travel the world and not be strapped to a desk all day. And it seemed like all the super talented beasts were getting like jobs at the Amazons and the Microsofts. And I, I was just like, I don't know if I want that life. I'm going to do my own thing. And you know, maybe there's going to be less talented around me and, you know, I'll struggle harder in my career because I'll have to learn my own way. And then I found Seth and like your crew, UX cabin is just like top notch guys. And I'm like, this is cool. I get best of both worlds. So that part's awesome too. 
Yeah, I think the remote first mindset kind of lends itself to finding that talent, right? If I have an office here, you know, I don't have to just find people within a 30 mile radius of my office that are really good. I can, you know, find anyone across the world and and get the best, the best of the best. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's also part of the mindset that has helped propel us because we can, we can pull someone in from, from wherever, if they're awesome at, at this or that, and we can find them a lot easier. There's a much bigger pool of people. We can find more talent because we don't have to search within 30 miles and they don't have to drive into an office. And that's been huge that like, I think that's part of the reason why we grew so much over the pandemic is, is because we already had that kind of foundation built of remote first, how to bring people onto the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I got asked the other day about like, well, isn't Google's campus like so cool to be on? And it was like, I guess, but my campus is like infinitely better. My campus is like wherever I want it to be. And I can sit in that coffee shop or this coffee, like it's whatever. And I have way more control. And by the way, Google does not ask me if I can come to their meeting. <laughs> like, I need to be there and I probably need to stay <laughs> late every night. And, uh, I don't know. Like you have to have their, their campus is pretty for a reason. Like they're trying to get you to stay there and just work infinite hours. And I've heard horror stories and uh, probably why I don't lean towards working there. So I think, um, you know, there's, again, you can just got to kind of know yourself and, and figure out what you want. And this is definitely like the Google campus for me, you know, it's way better. That's awesome. I think it's funny. All of the, you know, the companies that like, you know, in the, in like honest, like best interest, they, they try to yeah. provide things like ping pong tables or like Xboxes or like beer in the fridge and all of these different things. But I think that kind of the, the, like the idea behind that is like, we want you to stay and work here for really long days. So we're going to make the environment really comfortable. And that's great. If you want to stay there and work, really put on long these rose colored glasses. <laughs> But if you want to like leave and go home, like, you know, how, what, what's the value of having all of these awesome benefits? It's like, if you want to just get back and go home or go do your own thing, you know, it's tough to understand that or to see the flip side of, of what that actually means of all those benefits in the office. It's like, you're supposed to stay here. Do you really want to leave? It's whiskey Wednesday. (laughs) For sure. I think I almost got trapped into a very long-term employee type job right before I was going to start my nomad journey. And I was having a crisis because I needed to tell them I was stuck between two different offers and one was temporary and would get me the rest of the funding I needed to start the nomad journey. And the other one was this really cush, like, uh, well-known tech company and like they were going to provide this beer cellar and like they had a state-of-the-art kitchen and like they had lunches brought in every day and all these different things and they actually had a really good stance on research that I really liked and it was like come and work for us and like name your price it was just everything you wanted in your ideal like tech dream right and so I was so torn because I'm like 
that would be so cool. So I needed a, like, I had one night to try and figure it out. And I called a really great mentor that I'm still grateful for to this day. That phone call changed everything because he let me go off on my tangent about how cool it is and all these things they offer. And then I, you know, let myself get tired out. And he's like, yeah, yeah. So, so you think you need all those things? Like, are you a beer connoisseur? And he knows that I'm super not. Like, I don't care about beer at all. I know some people do. But he was like, yeah, are you just going to work from the beer cellar every day? And I'm like, no. And he's like, how many cars do you have? How, what's what's your uh, uh, lease like on, on your, you know. He started naming all these bills that a lot of people have. And I didn't have any of that because my my orientation and thought process was a completely different direction and I'm trying to get all my debt paid off and all these different things. So I can travel. And, uh, he just started naming all these things that I don't have. And, uh, he's like, so do you really need that job? Like, do you, do you, is that the direction you're going in? Cause it looks like, <laughs> and he was a, re- a UX researcher too. So he knew how to interview me to let me come to my own conclusions. <laughs> We're almost like therapists in that way where we know how to like question each other to make sure you come to your own conclusion. And so it was the perfect person to talk to. Cause he, he really made me almost feel like an idiot for even considering that. Cause I was like, Oh, like, not even what I want to do. A lot of people, that's great, and uh, kudos to them. But for me, there's not enough beer sellers in the world who can make me work for you. <laughs> not what I'm going for. Awesome. Well, it sounds like that quote we were talking about right before we got on, um, less comfort, more life. Yeah, I saw that recently. I think that's true. I think if you your worst enemy can be comfort, and that, that comfort, yeah, it could come from... Uh, all those amenities that they were providing. And of course the paycheck would have been dope. And, and, and then from getting that money, you probably would have given yourself more comforts. And I will tell you from traveling and meeting all these different cultures and having the benefit of having this completely different perspective on life, life is better than any of those things. And I'm so glad that, you know, you still have to make, I still have to make that decision pretty regularly of like, no, I, I still want this. <laughs> this is, this is it. Like I want to go to cool waterfalls on the weekend and hike and like pet wild horses that just happen to be there. That's so much cooler than that, you know, super huge flat screen TV that I might've had if I did go that other route. Awesome. Well, Jean, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your your background, your insight, your wisdom. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Any parting words before we sign off for the day? I think that quote's a good one. Less comfort, more life. <laughs> Less cool comfort, things. more life. Nice. Cool. Well, thanks, Gene. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today on the Product Design Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure and go follow our guests. Let them know they did a great job and you learned a lot. Um, More to come in the following weeks as we bring on new guests. Please hit that subscribe button so that you will get these podcasts uh, and learn a ton about the product design community. Excited to see you next time. Thanks.